Welcome, everyone, once again to the Vineyard. My name is Christian Root. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to be sharing this morning. We are currently, you might remember, in the middle of a series entitled simply The Kingdom of God. And over the course of this series, we have been exploring and examining different aspects of God's kingdom. And this morning, church, as we continue our series, we're going to be in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, if you want to head there now, where Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a great banquet. But before we open up to God's word, as always, we want to pray. And so let's pray together, church. Jesus, we, we thank you. We thank you that you, you have just been so kind to this church we, we, we thank you, Father, for, for the fall party yesterday and the, the chili cook-off and the folks serving at the free store, Father. There's just a lot going on here right now, and we just thank you for all of the ways in, in, in which um, you're empowering us to serve our city and to, to serve you and, and folks who need it, Father. Would you continue, Jesus, to put your hand on this church? Would you continue to help us as we seek to glorify you, Father, and and draw many into your kingdom. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your protection. Thank you for your provision for this church. And I pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would empower me. Would you fill me with your presence? Would you fill me afresh? Would you fill me now as I preach? Would you give us eyes to see and, and hear from you as we come to your word in Jesus' name? Amen. 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 Well, as I said, church, we are in Luke chapter 14. We're going to be starting halfway through the chapter in verse 15. This is what we read. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still more room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. Church, there are four different lessons I want us to take away from Jesus' parable this morning. And so let's jump in together. To begin, church, Jesus' parable points us to the beauty of the banquet. The beauty of the banquet. That's our first point. In the Gospels, Jesus told two different parables in which he compared the, the kingdom of God to a banquet or a feast. And at the very end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 19, an angel told the apostle John to write out the words, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, now why is the kingdom of God often, church, referred to as a banquet or a feast or, or a wedding supper? 
Well, why does Jesus tell us that when we think of, of the consummation of his kingdom, when, when we think of his rule and reign being fully present on this earth, that, that we should think of a banquet or a feast? Well, there are two reasons, church, two reasons. Number one, because there will be a literal feast. We will sit down to actually enjoy a real meal in the presence of Jesus upon his return. And that will be a glorious day. The the, the kingdom of God, which is already present in our midst, will be fully established on this earth. And we, with resurrected bodies, will enjoy this wonderful banquet together. But secondly... Secondly, Jesus refers to the coming of his kingdom and all of its fullness as a banquet because a banquet or a feast represents the fulfillment of our deepest needs. No one, no one, church, walks away hungry from a real feast. A a, a feast satisfies our actual physical appetite, of course, but but a true feast, a a, a true party, satisfies our appetite for friendships, for for socialization, for belonging. A a true feast, a, a good party, satisfies our appetite for music and celebration and laughter. If you were to think, friend, of the three or five best memories of your life, those times when you felt most safe, most loved, most fulfilled, most content, I would bet that the majority of these memories all involved good food and good people and a good amount of rest. And so Jesus says to us, do you want to know what it will, will feel like to live in my kingdom? Do you want to know what the fully consummated, fully established kingdom of God will look and sound like? The kingdom of God, in all of its fullness, Jesus says to us, will feel like the greatest feast, the most exciting party, the sweetest family reunion that you have ever attended. And this is why the Apostle Paul could say in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. What we are suffering now, Paul says, isn't even worth comparing with the future glory that we will experience. The loneliness that we experience now isn't worth comparing with the future love and affirmation that we will feel. And the pain in our body now isn't worth comparing with the gloriousness of our future resurrected bodies. The relational conflict in our life now isn't worth comparing with the future peace and harmony we will enjoy with other believers. And the sadness that we're inflicted with now isn't worth comparing with our future joy. Now, now church, there, there is one fundamental difference between the feast we will experience in the kingdom of God and the feasts or, or parties that we experience here. If you're anything like me, if you're anything like me, then when you're at a party or a family reunion and you're surrounded by good food and good people and loved ones that you care about so deeply, despite your your great gratitude and and despite all of the excitement around you, the the moment can still be tinged with a, a bit of sadness. With a bit of sadness. Why? Why? Because you know that the party will soon wind down. 
Because you know that the vacation can't last forever. But because you know that Monday is still coming. But in the kingdom of God, friends, in the kingdom that Jesus has for us, Monday never comes. The grind never returns. Loneliness never sets in. Exhaustion and burnout never show up. And bad reports never arrive. It is hard to even fathom, even conceptualize a world in which each day is promised to be as good as the last. But that church is where we are headed. That's where we are headed. A world without tearful goodbyes, a world without endings, without hope deferred, a world without Mondays. And as followers of Jesus, it is incredibly important that we live in sight of this coming banquet or feast right now. And so how do we do that, church? How do we live in light of this coming banquet? Well, let, let me offer you an illustration. Listen, I, I am not someone who enjoys winter weather, okay, to put it mildly. I, I am not someone who naturally enjoys walking in snow or driving in snow or shoveling snow. But, but there's two or three days a year in, in, in which the, the snow or the cold, they, they never bother me. There, there's two or, or three days a year when, when the snow is actually a delight, and it's not Christmas, okay? It's not Christmas. I'm not dreaming of a white Christmas this year. I dream of a 65-degree Christmas, okay? That's my dream, all right? That, I'm, that's the song I'm singing. No, no, the three... No, the two or three days a, a year, church, where I, I really enjoy the cold, where I actually embrace the cold and the snow, are the two or three days right before our family vacation. Because like most of us, well, what, what do I do before heading south in January or February? A few days before my vacation, I start pulling up the weather for our destination on my phone. That's what you do, right? You go to the weather app, and you start pulling it up, and you start, okay, Tampa Bay, what is that looking like right now, right? And I read, high of 74 on Monday, high of 76 on Tuesday, high of 81 on Wednesday. My, my circumstances in Ohio haven't changed at all. It is still cold, but the cold no longer bothers me because I have shifted my focus to where I am headed. And church, I do not want to spend the remainder of my life fixated on problems I can't control or frustrated that my life hasn't gone to plan. I do not want to spend the rest of my life complaining that Jesus never provided the promises or the blessings, rather, that he never promised to give me in the first place. No, I, I long to be someone, and I long for us to be a church. I long for us to be a church that experiences real joy in the midst of our struggles, real gratitude in the midst of life's complications, because we are focused on where we are. Because we regularly turn our attention to the feast that is coming for us. Jesus' parable points us to the beauty of the banquet. And secondly, church, Jesus' parable points us to the danger of self-deception. The danger of self-deception. Today's teaching text occurs halfway through Luke chapter 14, and in this particular chapter of Luke's gospel, Jesus is a, attending a dinner party in the house of a prominent Pharisee, 
And at this dinner party, as we saw in verse 15, a man offered a toast, saying, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now, we we can only infer that this man, probably a Pharisee, offered the toast because he assumed that he would be among those attending the banquets. He offered the toast because he believed that one day he would be seated to dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. And in order to highlight the danger of such an assumption, Jesus shared this parable of the banquets. This parable which suggests that it is not enough to be invited to the feast. One must actually say yes to the gracious invitation of the host. It is not enough, Jesus' parable teaches us, to be religious or thoughtful or a fairly moral person. No, we must receive Jesus as our Savior in order to enjoy the benefits of his banquet. And as a pastor, listen, as a pastor, there, there are a few thoughts more sobering to me than the thought that there could be men and women and teens who who listen to me every week, or or at least semi-regularly, who believe that they will one day enjoy the banquet of God with all of Jesus' followers, when in fact their seat has not been reserved. It is tremendously saddening to think that in this very room, there might be some who, who believe that they've been made right with God, who believe that they will one day have a seat at the banquet when in truth they shall be turned away. And so, friends, how how can we know that we are truly followers of Jesus? How how can we know that our, our sins have been forgiven, that we've been declared a son or a daughter of God, that we've been received by Jesus? Well, let me offer an illustration I've shared before that I am not a huge fan of salads, okay? I've I've made that abundantly clear in the past in my sermons. I've just, I've never chosen a wedge salad over some ribs or pulled pork, okay? That's just not a choice that I'm ever going to make. However, however, all of that said, all of that being said, if you were to see me eating a salad, it would not necessarily mean that I've somehow been made new, that I've become a new man. Because despite the fact that I don't prefer salads, I I might still decide to eat a salad for the health benefits or or in order to appease my wife or or because it's it's all that's being offered. No, the only true sign that could prove a significant change has occurred within me, that, that I have become a new man would be if I actually began to enjoy salads. A a true sign that I had become a new man would be a change in my actual taste buds. And and friends, in a similar way, in a similar way, engaging in church activities, becoming more religious, in other words, is not necessarily a sign that you have been made new. For, for you can pray and read your Bible and attend a home group and, and give to the work of the church for all sorts of reasons. You, you can serve here out of peer pressure or guilt or, or in some misguided effort to somehow manipulate the Lord into giving you what you desire. You can attend here on Sundays because you're forced to by a parent or because you're lonely or because you have friends here that you want to see. No, the only true sign that you have been made new, 
The only true sign that the, the Spirit of God now dwells within you and that you are a new creation in Christ is a change in your actual taste buds, a, a change in your actual desires. We know that someone has been redeemed, has been made new, has become a child of God when their preferences, their, their taste buds, if you like, have actually radically been altered. When they begin to pray because they enjoy it. When they begin to read their Bible because they want to connect with the Savior whom they love. When they turn from their sin, not primarily out of fear of the consequences or, or concerns of being maligned by others, but because they genuinely want to honor their Father in heaven. Now listen, in, in no way am I suggesting that as a genuine Christian, you will always be extremely excited to pray or to worship or to amble in on a Sunday morning. There, there are certainly dry seasons in our walk with the there will be times when following Jesus will feel more mechanical than energizing. And certainly, until our deaths, we will battle the selfish and the sinful impulses that continue to linger within our hearts. It's just not going away. But a true Christian is someone who can say, friend, by the grace of God, my, my taste buds have been radically changed. My, my preferences have been radically altered. I, I want to worship my king now because he's worthy. I, I want to serve my king because he's beautiful. I want to follow my king because he's trustworthy. Friends, have you experienced this change of taste buds? Has your world been upended by this exciting but disorienting experience? Can, can you say, not, not only does my life look different now that I've become a Christian, but my, my former way of life has lost its appeal. This is a sign, friend. This is the sign that you have been made new. This is the sign that, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you have become a new creation. And, and if you would say, Christian, I, I've never experienced anything like you're suggesting. I've never experienced an overhaul in my desires and motivations and aspirations. Then may today be the day, friends, that you come to Jesus and you fall at his feet, as it were. Would today be the day that you repent of your sins, that you ask Jesus for his forgiveness, and you tell Jesus that you want to follow him. May today be the day that you come to him, and you look to him and him alone for your salvation. You look to him and, and him alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And in turn, friend, if you come to Jesus this very day, he will change your taste buds. Jesus will make you new. Thirdly, church, Jesus' parable points us to the value of difficulties. The value of difficulties. You'll remember that in Jesus' parable, two different invitations were sent out to the guests. And this was a common practice in Jesus' day. When throwing a, a lavish banquet, the host would send out the first invitation weeks or, or even months in advance. And those who replied yes would then receive a second invitation to the, to the banquet on the actual day of the feast. But when the banquet was ready... Those guests who, who were, had originally said yes now all had excuses. Excuses that were, were the result of apparent blessings in their life. 
I have to check the land that I've just bought, one guest said. I have to check the oxen I've just purchased, another replied. I have to spend time with my new spouse, a, a, a third shared. The blessings in their life had evidently become barriers in their attendance at the feast. And so what did the host of the banquet, who of course represents God, what what did the host do when his guests refused his invitation? Well, this is what we read beginning in verse 21. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Jesus is suggesting that those who struggle, those who experience severe difficulties and challenges in life, will be more often willing to to receive an invitation to the banquet in the kingdom of God than those whose lives are more idyllic, more comfortable. For the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame had no money to buy land which could divert their attention. And the poor, the crippled, the lame, they had no means to purchase oxen which could distract them from the feast. The poor, the crippled, the lame perhaps had no spouse who they might prioritize over the banquet. It is those who are often most pitied, Jesus' parable communicates. Those who are often the most recipients of bad news. Those who do not share in the prosperity or good fortune of others who are most likely to accept an invitation to the feast. Who are most likely to become followers of Jesus. Jesus is attempting to show us that it is the problems in our life, the challenges in our family that are quite often the means our Father uses to bring us into his kingdom. It it is the difficulties we detest, the headaches we hate, that remind us of our great need for the Lord and protect us from the pride that would persuade us to turn away his invitation. In Hosea chapter 13, verse 6, the Lord, in, in speaking of his people, the Israelites, said this, He said, when I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. Haven't you seen this in your own life, friend? I've seen it in mine. That when all seemed right, when when your circumstances were favorable, when your dating relationship felt perfect, when the money was good, when your boss was happy, that it was easy to begin to drift from the Lord. But all it took was that callback from your doctor or or your dwindling bank account or the concerning text from your son or the news that there would be downsizing at work to wake you up once again for your need for God. All it took was that punch in the gut to remind you that you can do nothing without him. All it took, friend, was that cold glass of water in your face. To remind you, once again, that you desperately need his peace. That you're helpless without the Lord's strength. That you're aimless without his wisdom. A Christian, John Barrage wrote, never falls asleep in the fire or in the water, but grows drowsy in the sunshine. And in his great kindness, church, Jesus allows pain and suffering to enter our life that we might not resist his invitation to the banquet. In his book, The Prodigal Prophet, Pastor Tim Keller shared an old fairy tale. And like many fairy tales of old, it involves a witch. This witch lived in a remote cottage deep in the forest. 
And when travelers passed through looking for lodging, she would offer them a meal and a bed. Now, this bed was said to be the most comfortable bed in all of the world. It was so soft, so comfortable, so, so inviting. But there was a catch. It's always a catch when it's a witch. There was a catch. The bed had magical properties. And anyone who was still asleep in the bed when, when the sun arose was, was turned to stone. Was turned to stone. One day, a young man came looking for bed and board, and he was taken in by the witch. The witch's servant girl was, was soon taken by this young man. And the servant girl couldn't bear to see the young man turned into stone like all the others. And so this servant girl, she devised a plan. This servant girl sneaked into the bedroom before the young man laid down, and she threw sticks and stones and thistles into the magical bed in order to make the bed horribly uncomfortable. And so when the young man finally did lay down, Every time he turned over in the bed, he, he now felt a, a painful object beneath him. The young man tried to throw the sticks and the stones and the thistles out of the bed, but every time he rolled over, it seemed as if there was another stick or thistle waiting to dig into his flesh. The young man's sleep was, was just terrible, of course, and he arose long before dawn. As he walked out the front door, the, the young man, he berated the servant girl cruelly. How could you give a traveler such a terrible bed full of sticks and stones? He cried out as he walked out the front door. And as the man walked away, the servant girl said under her breath, the misery you feel now is nothing like the infinitely greater misery you would now be feeling had I allowed you to fall asleep. Those were my sticks and stones of love. don't you see? Don't you see? Jesus understands that the comfortable, the self-sufficient, the affluent are those who are most likely to reject the invitations into his great feast. And so in his great kindness, he throws sticks and stones and thistles into our lives. He allows our, our dating relationship to fall apart. He uh, allows the job offer to be rescinded. He, he allows our health to take a turn for the worse. He allows conflict within our family to persist. Why? 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 Because, church, he longs to keep us awake. He, he longs to, to keep us awake to our great need for his help, to our great need for his provision, to our great need for his salvation. Jesus throws and thistles into our bed because he knows that it would be far better for us to be uncomfortable than to fall asleep, as it were, and reject his invitation to the banquets. We question the goodness of God in light of the suffering in our lives. And Jesus says back to us in return, those were my sticks and stones of love. Those were sticks and stones I allowed into your life, Jesus says to us. For your good, for your good. For friends, the, the truth is, listen, listen, the truth is, the greatest complaint within your head might very well be the greatest reason you are still following Jesus. The biggest problem within your world might be the biggest reason you're still here at church today. 
You might not have the land that you desperately wanted. You might, not, you might have been outbid for the oxen that you pursued. You, you might not have the new spouse that you desired. You might feel like the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. But if you have accepted, friend, the invitation to, to the feast in the kingdom of God, then for all of eternity, friend, for all of eternity, you will thank the Lord for his sticks and stones of life. Lastly, church, lastly, Jesus' parable points us to the costliness of the banquet. The costliness of the banquet. A, a banquet, like Jesus describes in this parable, was no small affair in Jesus' day. And this was in part because in the ancient Near East, there was no refrigeration to speak of. And so when you slaughtered a calf, for example, the, the whole calf had to be eaten, and, and rather quickly, you couldn't store half of it in your freezer in the garage. Parties like this, as I, I shared earlier, were planned months in advance. The guest list would be extensive. The food would be plentiful. The cost would be steep. And the cost of the great banquet in Jesus' parable points us to the great cost of the banquet that we will one day enjoy. Listen, when, when Jesus began his public ministry in Luke chapter 4, Jesus entered a synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, and he asked for the scroll of Isaiah to be handed to him. Any of us remember this scene? After being handed the scroll, Jesus read from Isaiah chapter 61. He read from the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament scriptures, and this is what he read. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim freedom or because he has anointed me, rather, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And by reading this prophecy aloud, Jesus was saying that he was the anointed one referred to by Isaiah. That he was the one who had come to set the oppressed free, to bring salvation to the people of God. But what is deeply telling, friends, what is deeply telling is that Jesus cut off Isaiah's prophecy partway through. And Jesus didn't just cut off the prophecy early, but in the middle of a sentence, in the middle of Isaiah's thoughts. Isaiah's prophecy in the Greek version of the Old Testament reads like this, if we were to, to read it in full, or at least read it further on. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and, and the day of vengeance of our God. That's the little phrase that Jesus cut off. Now why, church, it's a good question, why did Jesus cut out Isaiah's prophecy right in the middle of his thoughts? This has puzzled commentators for years. Jesus did not omit Isaiah's prophecy about the vengeance of God because Jesus found it hard to say controversial things. Let's be honest. Or, or because Jesus found it hard to talk about hell or judgment. No one talked about hell more than Jesus. And Jesus did not omit this part of the prophecy because he believed that God's plan for vengeance had somehow been nullified. Now, Jesus makes clear throughout the Gospels, does he not, that judgment will come to those who have rejected his invitation to follow him. And so why did Jesus omit this phrase? 
Why did he omit this phrase? Why, why did he cut Isaiah off in the middle of a sentence? Because, church, at Jesus' first coming, he came not to pour out the wrath of God, but to receive the wrath of God. Jesus came into this world the first time not to pour out God's vengeance, but to bear it. At the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, here in Luke chapter 4, Jesus already knew, church, where he was headed. He already understood what must be done. Jesus knew that he had come to receive the wrath of God on the cross, the punishment for our sins, that anyone who would believe in him might be forgiven and might be declared righteous. Jesus knew that he had come to pay the price for our guilt. Do you see, friends, do you see, I need you to see this, do you see the exorbitant, Cost that Jesus paid to provide you with a seat at his banquet? Do you see what your invitation required of Jesus? In order for you to be brought into the banquet, he had to be cast out into the darkness. In order for you to be filled, he had to be emptied. In order for you to be celebrated, he had to be jeered at. In order for you to receive the Father's embrace, he had to receive the Father's Friends, on that great day, when we enjoy the great feast in the kingdom of God, the banquet will be made all the sweeter, all the more glorious when we remember how our invitation was secured. We will remember on that great day that we have not been invited to the banquet because of our intellect. We will remember that we have not been invited to this feast because of our accomplishments. We will remember that we have not been asked to join in the heavenly festivities because of our great sacrifices or because of our integrity or because of our superior faithfulness. No, church, we will remember, we will celebrate on that great day that we have been invited into the banquet in the kingdom of God because Jesus paid our invitation in full. Because Jesus secured our invitation, church, with his own. Amen. Amen. Why don't we stand?